Every time I take one of these extended leaves of absence, it always feels like a little bit of a new era. But at least this time, I feel like, uh, I feel like there's a better reason for it. Welcome to the Cookie Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this episode, I'm going to be focusing mostly on a review of Rogue One, a Star Wars story, uh, as well as a couple of other movies that I've checked out and enjoyed quite a great, quite a bit since uh, since the last time I did an episode, and it's been a while. So first off, right off the bat, I just wanted to kind of clarify what what's been going on lately on my end of things. So uh, Kai and I just recently welcomed a baby girl, our first, named Zoe, uh, a couple weeks ago. So, you know, just as far as life stuff, we have been uh, pretty busy just getting ready for her arrival. And, uh, you know, in the immediate care, we're now adjusting to life with a newborn. So please bear with bear with me as, uh, you know, I try and uh, try and find the place for this podcast uh, in with the millions of other things I have going on, including now changing diapers and, <laughs> and uh, helping to take care of a newborn. So um, welcome Zoe to the uh, Crooked Table family. And uh, let's move on ahead with uh, some, a couple, couple movies I've been watching this week or since our last episode, at least. So uh, I did see Dr. Strange. Uh, people that have been following the podcast for a while know that we are pretty big superhero fans, Marvel and DC alike, no favoritism here. Um, but yeah, so Doctor Strange was, to me, the second half of Marvel, uh, Marvel Studios' basically strongest year to date. I feel like with Captain America Civil War and Doctor Strange, this is a one-two punch, the likes of which the Marvel Cinematic Universe hasn't really seen thus far. Uh, in that both films, to me, are in maybe the top five of uh, the MCU efforts to date. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff in Doctor Strange that really stuck out to me as uh, egregiously bad. It, the, uh, the film had really stellar visuals going on. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch's performance, as well as Tilda Swinton, Chiwetel Ejiofor, uh, all of the, all, a lot of the main characters, uh, you know, those are all Oscar-caliber actors, and I feel like they all pretty much lived up to what you, you know, what you would expect of them. I did feel like Rachel McAdams, as a recent Oscar nominee for Spotlight, especially, and, you know, a beloved actress in her own right, uh, didn't really have much of the, much material to work with. She was essentially the kind of the stock girlfriend character, and the arc between her, her and her relationship with with Doctor Strange didn't really come to a satisfying conclusion. I mean, you were always... I mean, if you're like me, you were probably expecting there to be a big climax where she realizes, oh, he's a changed man or something something to play out with that. And granted, that maybe would have been a little bit more predictable, but it still would have made her character's arc feel more complete. So I felt like she was lacking in that respect. As well as Mads Mikkelsen, as Caecilius had you know, did the best that he could with the material he was given, but still has a lot of the same issues as past Marvel villains. I mean, Caecilius is essentially interchangeable with Malekith and, uh, you know, Ronan the Accuser and most of the other MCU villains, minus the likes of Loki, maybe even Zemo, a couple others. Um, but, but, yeah, aside from those two, the performances were really on point. The story was basically Inception meets... The Marvel Universe, uh, 
did rely a little too heavily on sort of the Iron Man template, but essentially that it, you know that it is also true to the comic books. So it's it's also you know how how much are they really supposed to veer away from the source material? Because then you'd have fans complaining about a whole other a whole other issue. So basically, you have to face critics sort of pointing out this sort of feels like a mystical Iron Man or fans being like that's not true to the source material so of the two uh, I think they made the right choice and I think for the most part it works it's essentially you know a very basic hero's journey on on some level but there's enough um, originality as far as the the script the visual style I thought Scott Derrickson who's done films like Sinister brought a lot to the film um, really made it feel like his own and sort of the way that James Gunn has done with Guardians of the Galaxy and the way Joss Whedon did with the Avengers it does feel sort of uh, right in his stylistic footprint um, I think that's that's very apparent from that film and it it, it kind of keeps the movie from feeling very generic so like like the weakest of the MCU films really have thus far and lends it a lot of personality the script is uh, got all kinds of twists and turns, a lot of adventure and comedy and romance, all of it's mixed together in a pretty satisfying way. Even if, yes, like most of the other MCU films, there's not that much... Uh, there's a certain level of artistry to it, but there's nothing that makes you... There's nothing that's profound or, or um, you know, transcendent um, in this film. Like there may have been with the Avengers in the last couple of Captain Americas. I feel like those three are still the best the MCU has to offer. But I feel like Doctor Strange, fittingly considering the comparisons I just made, uh, is right up in there in the second tier level for me personally with the original Iron Man. So uh, I have to give Doctor Strange four out of five stars. Very strong film. Not quite, not quite uh, one of my favorite, not quite my favorite um, comic book movie of the year. That still goes to Captain America: Civil War. Uh, but it's probably around the area for second place between that and Deadpool. Uh, but as usual, Marvel delivers, and I know the DC, you know, DC fanboys and the people on the DC side of things are going to try and keep that fire growing, being like, oh, you know, that Doctor Strange is, you just love it because it's another Marvel movie. I'm like, well, you know, I love it, but I love it because it, it's a good movie. And the DC side of things still has some work to do. Uh, even though I didn't hate BVS or Suicide Squad, as, or I didn't have as much uh, of an issue with either of those films as most people uh, I, you, you do see sort of a, a lack of clear vision or direction for the DCEU thus far so I'm hoping to see that develop you know, with Wonder Woman maybe going forward because MCU with Doctor Strange now if he's lined up to be a new pillar of the Avengers going forward um, they're looking like they're in pretty good shape uh, just have to kind of land uh, hope that Black Panther and Captain Marvel sort of stick the landing and then I think you might have your your next like next generation three to your next generation trio to take over for Iron Man Captain America and Thor as those actors sort of get phased out um, or replaced by other characters anyway moving on uh, I also saw Moana which I actually recently got the soundtrack to so that should give you some indication uh, this is Disney animation has really been on point um, this year be between Zootopia and this film. And it's weird that this episode I'm talking mostly about Disney stuff, but I mean it's 
Disney, Disney's having a like record-breaking year as far as worldwide box office, and considering the kind of quality work they're putting out there, it's hard to complain. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I would want to normally criticize the fact that Disney is just a major corporation that's buying up all these other properties, Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars, and uh, stockpiling them to themselves and kind of, uh, you know, having a little bit of a, bit of a monopoly in the, um, in the marketplace. Sorry, my, my mouth is dry. But, you know, when they're delivering such quality work across the board, it, it's kind of hard to complain. And Moana, which focuses on a young girl named Moana, uh, on a, an island in Polynesia and her quest to find the demigod named Maui, played by Dwayne Johnson. Um, of course, this is the musical that was featuring the features music co-written by Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame. And it's been getting a lot of press for that. I should also, you know, it's important to clarify that he only co-wrote them. He did not do them himself. Uh, himself. But uh, had a couple other composers, Mark Mancina, and and, and uh, you know I think one or two other ones that were he worked with on the film. Um, but the music in here, as you would expect, is stellar. And I've you know I've tweeted about this already, but I would be sh- I would be shocked if Moana does not walk away with the best original song statuette, either for How Far We'll Go, which really feels like uh, Colors of the Wind, or you know. Um, Part of your world. It has the same kind of ring to it to a lot of the classic, well, or at least Disney Renaissance tunes from back in the day that were either Oscar winning or Oscar nominated. Uh, or You're Welcome, which to me felt a lot like Friend Like Me in that way uh, from Aladdin. Um, I feel like the only ones that could really challenge it at this point are probably La La Land and, uh, you know, I think Sing Street, which some of you may know is my favorite film of the year. I feel like Sing Street has a solid chance to at least be nominated. I don't think it's going to win just because the film was so little seen. I think it made like $3 million at the box office or something. Um, but Moana was very delightful film and a lot of energy and, uh, and um, humor brought to the, to the screen. I think Dwayne Johnson brings a lot to it, even though it's just a vocal performance. He has that same charisma. Um, that you would, you know, expect from from The Rock. Um, his song is really strong. I thought he had a surprisingly strong singing voice. I'm sure we've heard him sing before in, in other films or you know maybe SNL or something like that. But I can't quite put my finger on where he would have sang where he would have sang before. Uh, but but yeah, he was really solid in here. The story is really powerful and uh, all about you know finding your destiny and and uh, breaking boundaries and it's very uh, very progressive in some ways and you know for someone that just had a daughter seeing films like Moana or Zootopia or you know Rogue One or Force Awakens or you know even the even the newest Ghostbusters which I know a lot of people really hate but uh, you know seeing female in such prominent seeing such prominent female-led roles where you know these these women are just so strong of character uh really heartens me as someone who you know was about to raise a little girl and moana moana probably gave me more feels because if we saw it just days before our daughter was born um, but the film also has a certain care that it seems to take with the polynesian culture 
something like Kubo and the Two Strings, which I've talked about on the podcast before, which I also really liked, sort of lacked uh, lacked that same kind of reverence. I mean, you had mostly white actors doing the voices of the characters in a very Japanese-infused, Japanese-set story that was you know heavily drawing on anime and that culture to uh, you know to convey its message. And, you know, didn't really commit to that. Granted, some of this is all, most of this is probably business related. It's just, you know, getting financing and this, the sad reality of, of uh, filmmaking. But on Disney's end, you know, they don't have an issue with resources, really. They have billions of dollars at their disposal. So it, it, you, you can tell that they took a lot more care with trying to preserve that culture and the myths behind it that sort of fueled the storyline. Uh, casting actors who were from, you know, different Polynesian uh, nations and just just doing justice to their culture on screen. I mean, you always have a risk when a film takes on a specific culture that's not often seen in the mainstream, uh, mainstream media or mainstream, you know, entertainment of kind of uh, sacrificing too much of its integrity just for the sake of selling tickets or... Um, you know, reigning in an audience. And I feel like Moana really towed that line perfectly. Um, you know, the visuals, as usual, are are uh, amazing. Um, Kai mentioned a few times when we were watching it, about or right after we were watching it, that uh, the water and just the details and the backdrops and the animation is just continues to to evolve and get stronger and stronger with every film um, you know you see a lot of that also in Finding Dory which is another Pixar property another Pixar film I should say and uh, just you know Disney continues to be the leader in family entertainment not only you know from a business standpoint but from a from a storytelling standpoint and there were a few years there I'd say probably post Emperor's New Groove and pre Princess and the Frog slash Tangled where actually almost a decade that's yeah that's just about a decade where disney was sort of faltering and i feel like i mean i still haven't seen the likes of treasure planet brother bear where or home on the range where their name brand and their you know the audience goodwill for um disney as a as a stamp of approval was sort of fading and i think you know with the last few years of uh, wreck it ralph and frozen and big hero six Zootopia and now Moana I feel like it is returned uh, to and I've said this before I'm sure on the podcast as well as in you know some of my other writings this is confirmed to me this year that this is the sec- we're in the second Disney renaissance um, you know of course the first Disney renaissance being Little Mermaid through Tarzan and I feel like Tangled and subsequent films since then have really confirmed that the Walt Disney Animation Studios brand is back in a big way and these are films to not only see and enjoy but to cherish these are ones that you're going to want to own and rewatch with your family for years to come cuz I mean that's I know that's what I'm going to do with uh, with Zoe and Kai and so I, I highly recommend seeing Moana for especially for all of you for well, for all of you who appreciate Disney animation or animated films in general but also, especially for you, those of you that have young, young, young girls that you're raising, I feel like this is, this is the kind of movie that they need to see. And in a, in a time where 
you know, I'm not going to get too into politics or anything, but we're in a time where a lot of things are, are shifting and there's a lot of uncertainty into the, in the air right now in the political landscape and, and our world in general. I feel like these are the kinds of stories that young women should be, uh, should be watching, should be exposed to, and the kinds of characters that they should be looking up to growing up. Um, you know, uh, Moana really serves that point of sort of being a, a fairy tale, but with maybe not as profound a message as Zootopia had as far as, you know, social commentary, but has a real, a real heart to it and, uh, you know, has, some, has something to say that younger audiences especially need to hear. Um, even if it doesn't reach the same lengths as, you know, the, the comment on the commentary on prejudiced, uh, on prejudice that Zootopia had that really, really needs to be heard by all, not just, uh, children. I feel like Moana is especially important for kids, but especially girls to, uh, to be exposed to. Cause it, it really did. It really is something special. Even if I, uh, ultimately prefer Zootopia, by a small margin, just because I feel like it, it is making a a uh, more significant point and making it more thoroughly and more uh, more surprising with its subtext. Uh, so that's Doctor Strange, highly recommended by me. Moana, highly recommended by me. Both of them probably four out of five or so. Uh, Moana, I'm still on the fence. Like I could easily bump that up to, up to four point five. Um, I would also say, since we're on the topic of family entertainment, even though you know this this one is not Disney owned, unlike uh, unlike Moana, Doctor Strange, and Rogue One, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, uh, I also saw Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and I was not impressed with that at all. I feel like it's the weakest of all of the Harry Potter films thus far. I feel like the story is muddled and overly busy, and characters are not particularly endearing uh the big twist at the end that we all knew because the news news stories already confirmed uh, certain actors uh, return for the sequel and i will not get into that but that was pretty that was pretty uh predictable from from a, an early point in the film did disservice not only to the film to that to uh audiences uh issues with that unnamed actors recent scandals but also did a huge disservice to the actor uh to one of the other main actors in this film and for you those of you that have seen it you know what i'm talking about you know the actors i'm talking about and the decision uh the creative decision that i ultimately was not really that big a fan of uh so it's surprising to me that jk rowling actually wrote the screenplay to this well it's surprising to me and it's not surprising to me it's surprising to me in that uh, it's ironic that the first film based on her world that she actually wrote directly and it's not based on a book is the most inferior of all of them. But at the same time, she's not a screenwriter. She is a novelist, first and foremost. And she has a certain knack for world building and uh, you know, uh, threading a narrative that maybe doesn't translate to film and i hate to say it but maybe jk rowling should have left should have had a story by credit and maybe had a had a screenwriter perhaps uh i think steve cloves is the name of the guy that wrote most of the other films maybe brought him back and had him had him write the screenplay based on her you know treatment or or just you know story idea 
um, because this was pretty unsatisfying for the most part. There's long stretches of this film where I was sort of just wanting the movie to get to the point. There's long stretches of it where I was ready to leave the theater, but the movies was like only halfway through. And, uh, you know, I didn't really care much for... Uh, it, was, I was, it was, to me, very mediocre. And considering the phenomenon that the Harry Potter world is, I, I feel like that franchise really deserved a whole lot better. And I know that Harry Potter fans right now are saying how great it is and how much they love Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. And somehow it got a strong critical reception, which I'm still trying to figure out, considering that I don't understand how that happened with Trolls either. Uh, But um, I do feel like history will look back on this as the Phantom Menace or the Hobbit trilogy of, of the Harry Potter franchise. Uh, I think there was really no reason for these films, well, at least this one. I can't judge the subsequent films. I feel like there's really no reason for these films to exist uh, other than Warner Brothers wanting to extend their, you know, marquee franchise since, you know, they, they all they really have at this point is the DCEU and that isn't exactly the slam dunk critically that they are hoping for. I think that this is just... Uh, you know, studio mandated extension of, Hey, we need to make a, uh, you know, 800 or however, I don't know if it made a billion yet. Fantastic beast. I have to check on that, but I'm sure it's at least going to make seven, 800 million. And this is more about the studio execs lining their coffers than it is any kind of creative decision. And yes, granted all of these are business decisions, but ultimately, you know, <laughs> there should be a compelling story and intriguing characters and, and something for audiences to to latch on to to propel the you know the franchise forward and for me at least i didn't feel like fantastic beast really had what it takes and you know maybe i will see the sequels uh, especially if i hear good things or if i like where it's going um, i know that we're supposed to see some more familiar faces i know we're supposed to get some dumbledore and uh, some other characters probably along with that in the upcoming films. And maybe that'll be enough, depending who they cast, depending on the trailer and all that stuff. Uh, maybe that'll be enough to win me back to it and actually get me excited about it again. But as of this one, yeah, not not thinking... Uh, I don't really think that the Harry Potter franchise is in a particularly strong place at the moment. So actually going from Harry Potter franchise to the Star Wars saga, that's a perfect transition from one fantasy uh, series to another, and yes, I consider Star Wars more of a fantasy series than I do sci-fi. Because come on, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, that doesn't scream fairy tale, right? Like, then uh, you know, I don't know what does. So, uh, with that being said, we're going to transition over to my review of Rogue One: A Star Wars Story. <laughs> Okay, so I just got out of seeing Rogue One, a Star Wars story. For those of you that have been living under a rock, or I guess who aren't fans of the franchise and maybe don't really care about what's going on with Star Wars, uh, this is actually the first standalone, or as they used to be uh, subtitled, anthology films in the Star Wars saga. Uh, Basically, this is a a new initiative or a new um, approach that has been launched since Disney acquired Lucasfilm back in 2012. 
they announced the plan to alternate between the official episodes, uh, Force Awakens being the first one of those, and uh, anthologies or standalone adventures set in the Star Wars universe. This is uh, the first one to be released of that, and then we have the Han Solo movie coming out in a couple of years, and, and so on and so forth. So this one tells the story behind the team of rebels that acquired the plans of the Death Star that enabled uh, Luke Skywalker to uh, destroy it in the original film. So uh, lots of opportunity there to tie directly into the original classic. And they definitely take advantage of of a lot of those uh, a lot of those threads and the you know the chance to sort of um, retcon certain elements of the mythology. I'm trying to I'll remain spoiler free pretty much for this one uh, because the movie has just come out and um, you know everybody deserves a chance to see it. I'm not really planning on getting too in depth on it, but. Uh, Buzz, for the most part, has been really positive on this one. I've seen some people on social media actually saying that this was better than The Force Awakens. um, That this is essentially what they've always wanted in a Star Wars movie. That kind of thing. And while I did enjoy Rogue One um, quite a bit, and I think it has a lot of of good things going on. A lot of... uh, Brings a lot of fresh... A lot of freshness to the franchise that... You know, for like a 40-year... For a franchise that's now almost 40 years old, kind of needs, you know, a little bit of, uh, of uh, fresh blood at this point. So I think Rogue One does... Uh, does offer that. Um, however, I did feel that as far as character, as far as story, as far as what... The, like, if I was viewing this film as on its own... It's not really, it's not really nearly as engaging as uh, Force Awakens. For example, Force Awakens, we had never met. Sure, you know the film did follow Return of the Jedi, but we had never met Rey. We had never met Kylo Ren. We had never met Finn, Poe Dameron, BB-8. But those characters were all instantly engaging. Instantly, you know, we were on their side, and we were anxious to see more of them because they were fun to watch. Because we wanted to know more about their backstory and how they connected and blah, 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 blah. I mean, look at anywhere on the internet and see the bazillion fan theories about Snoke, another new character, who was, you know, admittedly not one of the strongest uh, new additions in Force Awakens. But look at all the, the theories about Rey's parentage and, and what's going on with that and people speculating what's going to happen with her. Is she going to train with Luke and what, you know, uh, there was a initial, there was already excitement about those characters. In this one, we have another female lead, which is which is very exciting for the Star Wars franchise, which I don't know if you have ever seen. There's a YouTube video that basically cuts together all the footage of the, the females, non other than Leia, in uh, the original trilogy, and it's like two minutes. It's like Mon Mothma, and uh, there's another character somewhere in there, but basically like a minute and a half of footage other than Leia, of actual women in the original trilogy. And it's kind of, it's kind of messed up. So I, I appreciate the fact that Kathleen Kennedy, the head of Lucasfilm now, is making an effort to bring a lot of diversity to the franchise, a franchise that has been heavily dominated by, you know, white males. And here we have 
uh, a female in the lead, and we have a ensemble supporting cast of all the different races and ethnic backgrounds, and that's that's all well and good, and I'm really happy to see that. However, the characters uh, were not particularly well developed. Um, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot about them to to really get behind. Each I feel like I feel like each character basically had one like attribute, one main like one main characteristic and that was pretty much who they were. Donnie Yen was like a blind uh, a blind man who's well blindly uh, believing in the force and he keeps has a mantra of the force is with me and I don't even remember now and I and and I am with and I'm I'm one with the force and the force is with me I think. And uh, that's kind of we don't get a whole lot more background on his character. The same can be said for most of the other players as well. Mads Mikkelsen, who I mentioned earlier uh, as part of Doctor Strange, his character is a little more interesting here, and he's actually part of some of the retconning regarding the Death Star to actually help explain a little bit more of the plot holes from A New Hope regarding the, the Death Star, its, its, uh, you know, its vulnerabilities, and uh, the like schematics behind the Death Star, getting the Death Star plans in the hands of the Rebel Alliance. So this film addresses a lot of that and actually kind of cleans up some of George Lucas's mess from that original film where, you know, we all love the original Star Wars, but it's, there's a lot of plot holes and things in there where you can be like, well, couldn't they really? Come on now. Um, so Rogue One does a lot of, of good stuff with that. The visuals here, as you would imagine with today's technology, the visuals here, as far as the action scenes, are really strong. Uh, you've seen in the trailers the uh, the battles with the uh, Imperial walkers, and uh, you know there's of course X-wings and Y-wings and all the uh, all the all the badass scenes you would expect. There's not nearly as much Vader as I was expecting slash hoping for. However, there is a brief little bit towards the end that is that really makes me want to see sort of a uh, a standalone, not a stand. I don't know if we can get a standalone Vader movie, but like a, maybe maybe some, something that's set during the era of Star Wars Rebels, where we can get a little bit more of him sort of wiping out the galaxy and him in a, in a villainous supporting role. Not even necessarily a lead villainous role, but just more of him sort of uh, unhinged, like unleashed Vader. Um, we get a little bit of that almost at the very end of the film. So that was really uh, exciting to see. It was sort of like um, in the X-Men films when you, you know, why we're now finally going to get Wolverine, Berserker Rage and all just going hog wild in Logan and we got a little bit of it in X-Men Apocalypse. It sort of felt a little bit, uh, it sort of felt revelatory in that same way with Darth Vader in this film. Uh, There are also some surprising returns for characters from the original trilogy some of the technology that's used to bring them to life, and I won't get into details to, you know, to remain spoiler-free because there's this, you know, the, the footage I'm speaking of is not in the marketing for the film at all, uh, and it's, it'll be more fun for fans to experience it firsthand. That technology is a little sketchy at times. Um, I, it t- sort of took me out of the experience a little bit when uh, a couple of these characters show up um, augmented by CG, I will say that. I feel like the technology doesn't quite do the job that it was intended to do. I mean, 
for some of them, some of the scenes, it, uh, some of the shots rather, it does work pretty well. But there are some also where the seams are pretty apparent, and I almost wonder if they could have taken taken a little bit of a different approach with at least the character that. And for those of you who have seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. For at least the character that shows up in the very last, uh, very last frame of the film, uh, I feel like they could have done that a little better or a little, you know, just held back a little bit more and it would have been more effective than where they actually went with it. Uh, But, you know, for hardcore Star Wars fans, this is, of course, going to be another one that you're going to love. As I said, ties in perfectly with A New Hope. But basically, the next next scene after... Like, if this movie were to go on another five minutes, you'd you'd be in A New Hope, essentially. So... That's how closely it ties into the uh, the original film, and I don't think a lot of people were really expecting that. We were all sort of speculating that the story here was going to tie into the sequel trilogy at some point, and you know we were going to have references to you know Jen Erso being uh, you know Ray's mom, or or uh, you know learning something about Snoke going on in this film. Maybe you know uh, maybe Orson Krennic played by Ben Mendelsohn, who, by the way, is a really strong villain in this film and I think has a, a different kind of menace uh, than we've seen in most of the least recent Star Wars films. More of a bureaucratic menace in the way of Governor Tarkin, but not quite, uh, not quite as cold, a little... A little uh, he reminded me a lot of Hans Landa, the Christoph Waltz character from *Inglorious Bastards*. And you know, right out the gate, I mean, you'll, you still see in the first scene or so, um, the comparison is pretty apt, and that's the kind of vibe I got from him. Cold, cold, but not more calculating than cold. Um, had a real like sort of simmering rage under the surface, and I thought that he brought a lot to that character. So it's just it's just uh, it's a surprising move on Lucasfilm's part to to approach this franchise the way that they're doing here. Uh, I I love the idea of more standalone films. I think that it, that's only going to help the franchise grow going forward. Um, I think Rogue One was a strong addition to the franchise, even though for me person <clears throat> from excuse me for me personally, uh, Force Awakens is still a richer experience. There's a lot, I mean, it draws a lot on the history of the characters that are included in it, the supporting characters like Han Solo that are included in that film, and sort of instantly paints a portrait of this next generation of characters that we're anticipating to follow in subsequent films. Rogue One, as a, as a one-off, was, uh, was a lot of fun, but it's still, it feels more anecdotal, it feels more like a footnote to the franchise than than uh, than a substantive addition, if that makes any sense. You know, the film ultimately adds some depth to some of A New Hope, but other than that, the characters that that it brings to life don't really have much of a role to play other than in this film. So it's easily one that didn't really need to exist. Plus. You know, for me personally, again, this is all personal preference. Those of you that grew up playing, you know, the Rogue Squadron games and, you know, really, really being involved or invested in the Rebel Alliance side of things, wanting to pilot an X-Wing and, and uh, you know, take down the Empire, 
I feel like I could take down the whole empire by myself. That kind of thing. This should be a uh, should be a very uh, exciting experience for you. However, for me, I've always been more drawn to the force sensitive side of of the franchise. The Sith, the Jedi, that whole good versus evil dynamic. That's really what has always attracted me to Star Wars more. I mean, my favorite characters are Darth Vader, Obi-Wan, Yoda, and uh, and Luke. So, as much as Han Solo and Princess Leia and, uh, you know, Lando Calrissian and Admiral Ackbar and all those people, as much fun as it is to see the the Rebel Alliance versus the Empire or, you know, the First Order versus the Resistance, that dynamic, that to me has always felt been better served as uh, sort of set dressing to the Jedi, Sith, uh, you know, dark side and light aspect of uh, the franchise. So, not going to lie, as a, as a fan of that, I mean, I knew I wasn't going to get a whole lot of it in this film, but I... I still was would have I, I still would have enjoyed the film better had it focused more on that element of it, or in, or included characters that we either already were invested in or did a better job illustrating why we should care about Jyn Erso and uh, you know and her and her team here. Um, so all in all, Star Wars or a Rogue One, a Star Wars story, isn't isn't a is a fine addition to the franchise. It's not as strong as the best of the series. Uh, I saw on, on Twitter Kevin Smith saying that it's Empire Strikes Back good. I think that's really, uh, really pushing it. Um, for me, this one probably sits behind Empire, New Hope, Force Awakens, Return of the Jedi, and it's it's above. It's probably a, as far as. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely better than the prequels. I'll say that. It's definitely better made than the prequels. But it's probably right around the line of... Right around... Uh, right behind Return of the Jedi, I'd say. It's probably, like, basically mid, mid-range mid for uh, for the f- saga. But uh, a steep drop in quality from The Force Awakens, for me personally. That being said, you know, I'm sure I'm sure this film, this film will actually be the favorite Star Wars film of a lot of people. I'm already seeing that it is, so... Not not knocking that, just just a personal preference, I think, with this franchise. So, definitely excited to see more Star Wars films uh, every year. I'm loving the fact that we're getting one every year. Um, but, you know, I'm definitely going to be way more hyped for Episodes uh, 8 than I was for Rogue One. And, um, you know, it's, it was an interesting experience. The fact that this film exists at all, which, as I said, it kind of didn't really need to. The, the fact that Lucasfilm and Disney took a creative risk on this and told this kind of story, um, I think, shows a kind of gutsiness that some of the other Disney uh, branches, such as Marvel Studios, hasn't really hasn't really delved into too much. Um, I feel like they've mostly, Marvel at least, has mostly played it safe when it comes to narrative stakes and taking risks on... Um, certain things. I mean, they're, the properties that they've gone after, like Guardians, things like that, have been uh, on the riskier side of things, but as far as as far as far introducing a bunch of characters and then putting them into this kind of story, and again, I'm trying to remain spoiler-free, uh, it's a bold move for Lucasfilm, and as much as I preferred Force Awakens and the core episodes to, to Rogue One specifically, 
uh, I'm totally fine with them taking these kinds of chances. I mean, if if this is if this kind of standalone film that might not be 100% my favorite entries in the franchise, if this is what keeps the franchise fresh, keeps it alive, keeps the universe growing, then I'm all for it. So for Rogue One, I'm probably going to go about four out of uh, four out of five. So basically, with Doctor Strange, Moana, and this, we're like right on the four out of five uh, for Moana, slightly higher. Uh, range, and uh, I definitely highly recommend all three. As I said earlier on this on this episode, Disney has been rocking the shit all year between Finding Dory, Zootopia, Moana, Captain America: Civil War, Doctor Strange, Rogue One. Pretty much, with the exception of Alice Through the Looking Glass, uh, the uh, the studio has basically done no wrong this year, and you know, it's it's as a fan of all those different properties, it's, it's exciting for me to. To be able to stand behind them and be like, no, you know, Star Wars has legit artistic credibility once again. Thanks to J.J. Abrams last year. And I feel like Gareth Edwards here really uh, keeps that tradition in line. So uh, definitely, I know I know most of you are probably uh, going to see Rogue One if you haven't already. So definitely drop me a line on Twitter at Crooked Table and let me know what you thought of it. You can also find Crooked Table on Facebook on Instagram, on uh, Snapchat. No, not Snapchat. I'm on Snapchat, but I don't think Crooked Table is necessarily on there. Uh, just reach out to me and let me know what you thought of the film. What was your favorite moment in Rogue One? Where do you? What kind of what kind of Star Wars anthology st- stories do you want to uh, see told next? We have Han Solo in 2018, and then we have an unannounced one for 2020, and it could be Obi Wan. It could be a, a, a spinoff of another character it could be a another story like rogue one that just fills in the gaps in between films so uh, at this point really anything's possible so drop me a line at crooked table and let me know what you want to see you can always find more podcasts reviews videos and other movie related goodies on crookedtable.com i know i've been really lax on the uh, video side of things for the last several months as i said that's what happens when you are preparing for a new baby and trying to balance your workload with with all this all this life stuff adulting is uh it's time consuming sometimes you guys so um i'm definitely planning on ramping up the videos in the new year um a lot of exciting films coming out next year that i can't wait to talk to you guys about so uh definitely keep checking crookedtable.com for updates or follow me on twitter and I'll be sure to communicate with you. And uh, as, far na- as, as far as this episode, I think that's pretty much all I have. Uh, it should be our last episode for the year. So I might as well wish you guys a happy 2017. It should be a, uh, a big one for all of us, regardless of what happens uh, politically. I know the, uh, the whole election, post-election thing has divided everyone up, but at least we can... We can always get together and unite over our love of film. And that's, it's the, in times like these, having those, those commonalities, I think, is the, is the most important thing. So let's, uh, let's stand united for, uh, you know, at least our love of cinema, if nothing else, as we enter uh, the new year and a new era for, for the nation and everything. So um, I'm, I've been Rob. This is the Crooked Table Podcast. And I'll check you guys out next time. Roll credits.
This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the low KED. <laughs> <laughs>